Our reading today uh, starts with um, Acts 17.22. It's Paul's uh, uh, speech in area in Mars Hill. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship, without knowing, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made for one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to change their thinking because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Paul's speech at Areopagus is usually seen as kind of a main model for interaction with non-believers, a way of connecting with surrounding culture by speaking their language. But too often people look only at the surface, that is, using cultural references to get the attention of people. With that approach, Paul's sermon can kind of be reduced to a rhetorical tool to win an argument, maybe about worldview, or in its worst version, to invite a sort of commingling of philosophies, pagan and Christian together. But there's a lot more actually going on. I'd like to look at some of the thinking that might be behind Paul's preaching. Paul had to know and understand the scriptures thoroughly enough to spot a counterfeit and understand the culture around him well enough to use their own idols to draw them towards the truth. In preparation for discussing Paul's outreach at Mars Hill and to explore a counterfeit from our own times, I'd like to consider a few pieces of scripture. They might seem random at first, but there is a connection to a very modern issue. And just as the best way to spot a counterfeit bill is by handling real money, the best way to spot a counterfeit idea is to know its most true example. So here's the readings from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Psalm 96.10 Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and everyone, it is the same God at work. 
Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Genesis 12.3, God speaking to Abraham, I will bless you, those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the world shall be blessed. Sorry, and in you all the families of the world shall be blessed. Exodus 19.6, the Lord said to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Acts 13.47 For so the Lord has commanded us, myself and Barnabas, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That is the same, or should we say, continuation of the calling to Abraham, Old and New Testament, as one continuous garment. So why have I brought together these seemingly random scriptures? Well, in Psalm 99, we find equity and justice in God's judgment. In 1 Corinthians, we find diversity of peoples and gifts. In Genesis 12.3, Exodus 19.6, Acts 13.47, inclusion of all people in God's plan for redemption. And those are really a very small sampling of where we could find these concepts. But if I said up front I was going to preach about equity, diversity, and inclusion, and justice, it would likely have created some concerned looks, maybe a little tightening of the body. (laughs) Why should that be so? All these concepts are literally owned by Christ, literally defined by God's relationship as Trinity that, in the words of Jonathan Wilson, finds its perfect description in the loving Trinitarian action of constant and eternal giving and receiving. In that Trinitarian relationship, we see perfect equity. All members are perfectly equal, but without striving. We see perfect diversity, one in being and simultaneously three persons, distinct and different but united. And we see perfect inclusion, inclusion being the love that always considers others above self. It's still possible to have those words, equity, diversity, inclusion, without mentioning God, who defines them in his very being. But they have no grounding. They have no objective meaning beyond what we will them to mean. And nothing to make them more than a, than a preference imposed by power and vanquished as soon as their burdensome yoke can be thrown off. Consider equity. How would we measure that using purely human terms? When could it be said that it has been achieved? The 18th century thinkers who formed our Constitution, probably having a sense of this conundrum, used the term equality in our founding documents to avoid the problem, meaning equality of opportunity, which seems more possible. Certainly it's provided a measure of freedom, but it doesn't really fully ground the concept or account for disparities and injustice. Equity is a noble goal, and one which we will eventually experience in God's full redeemed creation. 
But removed from that context, it's a cruel aspiration, always a promise and always just beyond reach. The Trinity, on the other hand, is the very grounding of these words, since these ideals are a part of the outpouring of God's eternal triune relationship. That relationship and its reflection in God's calling to Israel and Christ's ministry on earth gives meaning to the words and forms a calling to his creation. We see the unfurling of these words in the description of God's good nature in the Old Testament, but their fulfillment in full earthly dimensionality in Jesus Christ. Look at the continuation of Paul's description of the church, which is Christ's body, in the Corinthians passage, starting at verse 12. Just as the body, the one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink, Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for the reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. That's a pretty astounding passage, and I think because of its familiarity, we take it for granted, or make it a metaphor for a sort of team spirit, or model for working together. I mean, it is a metaphor, and it's also about working together, but only as a second meaning. A second meaning because it finds its truth, its grounding, its very defining character in Christ and his church. The followers of Christ, that is Jews, Gentiles, slave, male, free, female, male, make up Christ's earthly body in the equity of their worth and at the same time in the diversity of their function. The inclusion of all parts are essential. And as the body works together, it will be united to Christ as Christ is to the Father. But if those words do not find their location in the love of God through Christ, then Paul's calling is nothing but a motivational speech. Something like, be nice to each other because every brain needs a foot to carry it along or it won't live to its true potential. That ends up really being just a call for a form of royalty and peasantry and actually inequality, more than equality. But instead, Paul's words are a part of the tapestry of Scripture that forms the basis for most of what we now consider justice in relationships. By describing equity, diversity, and inclusion in context of the fabric of the redeemed creation, Paul defines and grounds those words in Christ. The problem is that the modern world has forgotten that, failing to locate that type of just cooperative relationship in God's good and loving nature. Because of that, the perfect love that we find in the Trinity should be the definition of that. Without that Trinitarian relationship, as truth beyond the ideal, it becomes just sentiment. Or worse, it becomes a grounds for coercion. The words become hollowed out and essentially meaningless and so must be imposed by force. 
In Galatians 3.28, an even more revolutionary passage in its time, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice here we have diversity, inclusion, and equity, but in the interest of creating unity. Unity is the chief goal of Scripture, the unity that calls us to find our identity in the perfectly loving union with God and neighbor for which we were created. Sadly, I'm pretty sure that the portion reading, there is neither male nor female, has been sorely abused in recent years. But its abuse has come from being pulled from its context and made into whatever we want it to be. But Paul's intention is to describe Jesus as the one who breaks down every injustice, prejudice, abuse, and hierarchy in human relationships. And Jesus does this not as a bolt out of the blue or a mere revolutionary thinker, but as the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture and the manifestation of God's beautiful nature that we see described from Genesis forward. This is nothing that should come to a surprise for us. Damon has preached this for years, and it's the very basis of the gospel. But culture will not give in. It fights tooth and nail to define goodness in whatever terms it pleases. In our slippery times, we need to be more concerned with reclaiming that truth as the property of God. But sadly, the church frequently shows more concern for meeting the culture where it is, becoming captive to it, than it does for gracefully showing the culture that the grounding for the truth of every word and thought comes from the nature and character of God. So how does Paul approach his hearers at Mars Hill, and how might that apply to a modern Christian's engagement with the world? Firstly, regarding how we understand language itself, we need to know that everything true and beautiful is so because it's rooted in God's nature. When we hear something that is true or beautiful, stripped of that grounding in God, we know that it's counterfeit, and it will not find its truth until it's returned to God. Sometimes a culture can coast for a while, But eventually, foundational concepts that were once but no longer rooted in the nature of their creator will be absorbed and redefined by a fallen world. Just as darkness is an absence of light and not something unto itself, so it is with truth and goodness. Evil is not a thing unto itself, but rather goodness ruined, goodness turned, goodness stripped of its origin in God's nature. The same thing happens to language. But we shouldn't be afraid for those lost words. We should instead be on the watch for stolen words and ways of being and strive to return those words to their origin, as Paul did through his ministry, including at Mars Hill. Secondly, as Pastor Damon has pointed out frequently, when we look at the Judeo-Christian concept of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, all of those four moments in history must be accounted for and be a part of the explanation for why we find ourselves in a particular moment. Just as a side note, in the modern world, those concepts are paraphrased with the questions for non-believers as, where did we come from? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And what will it look like when we fix it? It's the misanswering of those questions that, that causes so many problems. What we think of the world and how we give meaning to words will come from how we answer those four questions. But if we leave out the first question 
about the origin of things, as Damon has pointed out, all things, all hell breaks loose, literally. Without that starting point of a good creation as gift from God, then concepts like truth, justice, and goodness can find their grounding anywhere and come to have entirely different meanings. We need to recognize just how important that first question is to answering the rest. If the world and all that is in it is a random accident, then words can mean anything or nothing, based on who has the power to define them. But if the world is a creation out of love, given as gift by a creator who speaks, then we must find the meaning of all things in the nature of that creator. The false gods of the Areopagus were not sufficient to give meaning to anything. They needed to be replaced by the true God, and only then could the people be sure of, actually, of, the, of the words actually meaning anything. And that's what Paul's goal was at Mars Hill. Finally, and perhaps mostly importantly, we need to maintain an approach of love. Paul didn't call the Greeks at Areopagus fools, or try to call down God's wrath on them for their idolatry. He wasn't there to judge them, but to love them into the kingdom by sharing God's true nature. He didn't water down his message, but he did share it in a spirit of love. We don't read about his prayers for his hearers, but those prayers were most certainly frequent and impassioned. Even though it's quite possible that their worship of false gods involved dangerous and even evil practices, he treated them as brothers in Christ long before they could be called that. And it's pretty likely he wasn't just making up stuff or riffing about something he casually observed. He took the time to understand their culture and to see it closely enough that he could make an educated call to abandon what had been distorted or lost in their understanding of God's creation. Love creates relationship and cares about others as people, not just as opponents to conquer. And love is sacrificial. That's probably the most important key to reorienting our lost neighbors acting in love for them and out of love for God's goodness and his creation. Paul's call that day at Mars Hill epitomized that approach. Many scoffed and counted him a fool, but others joined him and believed. And in the true fashion that characterizes Christ's teaching about inclusion and diversity, regardless of how the surrounding culture might judge it, one of the two believers recorded that day was a Greek named Damaris, a woman, in a culture that had not yet learned to give equal value to women. But that culture would now find itself with the truth to begin that journey. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for the beauty that you've given us in creation. All things find themselves established in you, and they find their truth in you. Help us to feel sadness for a culture that has lost who you are and because of that lost what your words mean, what your creation means. Help us to call back the truth of your presence in this world from beginning to end, spiritually and physically. You've given us bread to eat, bread that's from your creation that is both literally a physical thing that we have and also a representation of your spirit. We thank you that in all these gifts we can find your beauty and your grace 
and we thank you for your patience with us as we suffer through difficult times sometimes, as your word is sometimes bantied about in ways that it shouldn't be. Help us to reclaim the truth of your goodness and to love one another and our neighbors back into the creation that you meant. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.